David, such a pleasure to have you on. It's a real honor. I'm very pleased to be here, Andrew. Thank you for getting me on. I would love to start, if we can, on, before we get into all the really interesting stuff, just the high-level contextual information around who is A&O, who are you, what do you do? And there's, there's a lot of stuff we're going to get into that's super interesting and unique. But I think that background context would be a great starting point. I'll start big then. So a and is one of the biggest law firms in the world. We have uh, 43 offices around the world. We focus mainly on business law and operate in multiple languages, litigation, lots of t- types of work like litigation, transactions, advisory, regulatory, et cetera, quite a broad spectrum. And the group I'm in, the Markets Innovation Group, is that I'm a partner at Al Navery who, who basically leads this group markets innovation group and it is made up of lawyers developers and data scientists and our job weirdly is to kind of disrupt legal industry is to look at technology alternative resource models and see how we could do things differently and we've been given a kind of roaming role in a firm to make that happen Mm. i also run the firm's ai strategy globally because i'm close to the tech and in a kind of with sort of using that experience with a slightly different hat on, I also advise clients on the safe deployment of AI across their businesses, looking mm. at the latest iteration of generative AI and how you try and harness that within an organization without breaking stuff. So those are all my hats, but all, you know, tech is driving a lot of them. It's such an interesting model doing this merger of lawyers and data scientists and engineers. It's a, something everybody should clearly have, but maybe... I think what might be helpful context on exactly that question is, how did you guys arrive at this? What, what is the inception for the Markets Integration Innovation Group? Where did you start? How did it get started? Yeah, so we actually, some individuals, myself included, we took a personal risk at first, actually, because the law firm model historically is very billable hour focused. What is What are you doing today? What is the work you're doing today? What have you logged? It's not very conducive to R&D. It's definitely not conducive to developing a proprietary tech solution where it may not necessarily be a commercial hit. You don't really can to try and make it work, but there's a risk of failure. So the first project we did was one called, a really big project we did, there were a few before that, a really big one was something called Margin Matrix. And we, in my team, which is small in those days, going back about 15 years, we built like a technology solution to remediate tens of thousands of contracts for banks to deal with some new reg- regulations post Lehman, and it, we but built it in a va- you know we built it in a proprietary way in a vacuum. I didn't know what feedback loop was in those days, but we built it in a vacuum, created the product, and we went and pitched it to some of the biggest banks in the world. And within a few weeks, we we made a sale, and we were delivering remediation tens of thousands of contracts through this system just for that one client. And I thought, we're going to need a bigger boat, actually. So we did a joint (laughs) venture with Lloyd because I needed someone to crank the machine. We had the machine, but we still, you know, we still need people to work the phones and so on when you're negotiating contracts. And so we, in the same breath, and the firm empowered me to do this, you know, we did a, we tied up the first ever JV with a big, a big law firm and a big four. And that, that was Margin Matrix. Once we had that, it was a lot easier to, to change organization because mm-hmm. we had this amazing success. We had years. We're very good revenue, very good products, very well received, loads of awards. And then I moved to organizational change, so trying to create a startup in the firm. So it was really that success that enabled 
subsequent change and making us a part of the furniture, if you like, within A&A, mm-hmm. rather than this weird group in the corner who are experimenting. And, and what about your background do you think led you to do this? Because I, I, I don't want to make a overly generic comment, but generally the lawyers that I know are not the types of people that would come up with this idea and want to go run it down and take the risk to do that. So like, what about your personality or, or where did you come from such that this was something that you were able to go do? Uh, I always loved tech, but I, uh, so a lot of lawyers, to be honest, I would say actually the biggest thing is a very personal thing is several years ago, my eldest daughter was diagnosed with cancer and I spent mm. a lot of time with her on the ward. I moved away from the, you know, I was out of work for a period of time. I was left to own my own devices supporting her. Sadly, she passed away a few years ago. And in that period, I, I just came, I just developed a different perspective. I observed a completely different environment. I spent hundreds of days in the hospital. I just had a fresh view of the world and everything in it. I, I didn't want to just carry on with things exactly as they were before. And I, I and having observed a different sector, the medical sector, and the way that operates, I thought I came back to law and thought I'm going to do this differently. Mm. I would say that life experience was a huge catalyst. I think it's quite common in innovators to have something like that, or people who set up businesses. It's that big tragic thing or big thing that that shaped their personality as a as a bit later in their career. That was wow. mine. It's an incredible story. I appreciate you sharing it. I hate to just go back to tactical questions and sort of uh, yeah. not spend more time on that. But you know, if we could go maybe back to the products, uh, Margin Matrix, for example, there are probably some set of decisions you need to make around who is actually using that, what is the revenue model going to be, and, and yes. maybe if you could walk us through how you work through those issues, maybe the different iterations you went through and ultimately arrived at the, the final sort of iteration of it. What, what did that process look like and, and what were the decisions you guys made? Well, I'll start with the use, like the problem which the market had, and that was to remediate tens of thousands of derivatives contracts, basically, because mm-hmm. of new regulation coming in. And it was important. There weren't going to be enough lawyers on the planet to do it, frankly. It was such a huge task in multiple jurisdictions around the world, so that we had this like, incredible demand, this huge problem, and there was no manual approach. And in those days, we're talking lawyers drafting, emailing, someone receiving, reviewing. It was that you know, very manual process. So the first thing I did is shop around for a decent doc automation product and mm-hmm. looked at where we could sort of um, drive it with structured data sets and created a, a, a very simple beta version, which didn't reflect all the regulations around well, but but would do the job. And I start, I didn't know I didn't know it was called this at the time. So I hadn't read the lean startup. I didn't I didn't know how to really approach clients and get a feel for what MVP is and so on. But I started talking to a few clients and getting a feel as to whether or not my guess of what the problem is and my guess of the light solution made sense to them. And what became clear is the clients going to be big banks and the clients are also sitting on big structured data sets, which probably without going too much into the underlying docs would give you enough to automate the remediation document. You mm. could just pull the structured data and ingest it and then auto draft loads of contracts, which fix the problem. And just by talking to clients, I worked out that was a, that is something that could be achieved. 
I then built like expanded the prototype so we could ingest structured data. And then they started talking to me about the way they communicate with customers and how now and how I need to integrate with customer interaction platforms like IHS Market or something like that. So I then had to think about structured data on the other side and how it'd be ingested in that system. So mm. it was really about like, making it fit within a workflow that they could see being used for other functions within their organization. Once I got, had a plan around that, we were away. You know, that thing was going to sell. And I would say we were very nervous about scaling it because it was quite new. Mm. With hindsight, we were probably very conservative. I mean, we went, we, we actually capped the number of very large banks at nine. We said no more clients because we are terrified of the scale of it. And, and maybe we shouldn't have done that, but it was so new that we, we did do that. Just out of a sense, law firm conservatism, it does creep yeah. in eventually. And, and what about, yeah, I, and maybe this isn't the case, but I could imagine there was some conversation around, all right, well, if you're selling the software product, it means that we're not charging for billable hours for the same work. Like, did you think about it that way? And if so, was there some analysis of, well, you know, we're not gonna be able to hire that many lawyers anyway. Maybe we could do 10% of the work. We charge 3x more of it in labor hours. So it's cheaper, but now we can do all of it rather than just 10%. Was there some sort of like relative value math you were doing there? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we were thinking in, in order to work out the price of it, we had to work out the alternative. And the alternative was incredibly labor intensive, you know, an hourly rate of lawyers plus managed services and lots of components, right? It'd be a huge army of people. And so what we did is come up with a fixed price, like a SaaS license fee per mm. number of contracts. And it was a lot cheaper. It was going to be a third, maybe more of the price of the conventional approach, depending on what kind of resource model you, you used. And it was so incredibly appealing. Now, from our perspective, we're thinking, you know, hindsight will show if that was a good move, that pricing model. It was a little bit finger in the air. Mm. But we knew we had to do a lot of quality control on a product and make sure it didn't have make mistakes because this is a regulated area, right? This is post-Lehman. There's a lot of scrutiny. A bug in the machine would cost us. So we basically projected that fixed fee and probably overdid the quality control and the checking because we wanted to make so sure our first product was a good one and we didn't have angry customers at the end. But it, you know, it was a very different business model to the law firm model, which is at that time an hourly rate business. Yeah, fixed fees are creeping in, but license fees—that's still pretty rare, even now. Yeah, ten years later. And and the business case, I imagine, is obviously it's a huge amount of. I mean, it's it's incredible what you built, and obviously a lot of value will accrue to A and O. But but is there some sort of other thinking on this where it's hey, you know, because we have these products, we can sell also some ancillary services because if people use the product, they're going to have to enter into things that. They're going, to, they're going to encounter areas the product is not going to handle, and therefore we're going to be there for them for that? Or is it really just simply it's a software product and like that's what we're doing? Most of the time, it is, a, it is the former. So it's a software product. That's what we're doing. And no one can exactly shape how much weird stuff is, it's going to flow from it, the things which are exceptions, which can't be handled by the product. But we know it's there. The, the, the customer knows it's there. And so we expect it and the customer expects it. And obviously being a law firm, we can deliver that tech solution, but then pick up all of those strays. Obviously, yeah. if it's 10% of 50,000 negotiations, that's a lot of strays. And so we provide a more conventional resource model to pick up those pieces. 
So then maybe going beyond just that first product, how many products do you guys now have live and in market? Well, we have an umbrella platform, which is devised by function, and that has lots of drawdowns in different areas. So we have a, a bond automation tool, which automatically drafts bond securities documentation. Uh, but it's using the same platform. We have a fund tool, so that's fund formation and you know fundraising rounds for, for companies. We have a, a loan execute, execution tool. We have, you know, they're all similar things. Auto-drafting, playbook. As you apl- apply generative AI, you start applying policy and negotiation standards. But that, that, that function is trans- translatable to virtually every department in my firm, right, in every jurisdiction. Yeah. Incredibly scalable as soon as you've got an auto-drafting tool. Similarly for due diligence, right? If you imagine due diligence tool to review, you can use that in M&A due diligence. You can then use it for litigation e-discovery. You can then use it for regulatory investigations. Then you can use it in different languages and yeah. create synopsis across different regions. And suddenly you've got a very powerful tool. That's how we're approaching it. And so because of that, I can't actually tell you, it's going to be a lot. So it's going to be a couple of dozen of small drawdown products off that framework. Functions that are common across them. And, and if you look at the all those products you guys have now built, and it's, it's such a large number, maybe this is a hard question to ask and answer. But I'm curious if there is a pattern in what you've seen in sort of, if you look at the ones like the top three or four that have added the most value in terms of software revenue or, or, or client billings, yeah. however you want to judge the value of them. Is there a pattern that you could identify that's, that, that, that you could turn around and then use as an identification framework for new opportunities? You know, is it, is it these things that are just the largest areas of the business? Is it like the most repeatable process? Is it new regulation? Is it primarily where there's structured data? Is there some sort of framework you can use now to judge these things? Yeah, I would say that there are two themes of two areas where you know it's going to succeed. One is heavily templated, highly repetitive, high volume. Okay. There's loads of those whole industry sectors with the legal support workers like that. And the second one is things which are susceptible to a dislocation event, right? A Brexit or a LIBOR being, you know, removed as an available interest rate or the default of a global, globally important financial institution, let's pretend. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing where people are saying, I've got a problem, I've got a small amount of time to fix it, just unleash whatever you can to solve the problem. That's yeah. different to my BA one, which is a high volume productivity gain. This is, I've got a problem, I need to fix it. I'd say it's always one of those two, the most successful. And, and you know, when you see it, it's just so big and obvious that it should be digitized or you know something should be changed in the workflow. Yeah. You can smell it's going to succeed before you've started. For other groups that are trying to build this type of practice, obviously it's hard to replicate, but... If you were to advise someone doing that, what are the the cautions you would give on the more negative side of like, look, this is where you can waste a huge amount of time. This is the mistake that we made here and here and here. Well, I think there's an organizational philosophy that might need to change. You know, the risk of failure, because these are R&D functions. It's not a core business. It's a kind of experimental group, my group, that can make money over five years. But if you're asking to make money over six weeks, that's going to be very hard. Mm. So I think there's psychology there you know is that understood in 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 the organization i'd also say the thing that tra- changed the way i approached this was when i read the lean startup i really thought oh my goodness i mean i didn't have business training i read that book and i thought i'm introducing feedback loop everywhere we're going to build measure learn build measure learn and that concept of focusing on 
the customer. It's not what would you want to put in the product. It's what do you need in the product to make you want to need it and buy it, not what's everything you want it to do. That sort of focus and a, and a method of gathering in a systematic way. I know that now after years. I wish I'd known that five years ago. It would have saved me a lot of time, actually. It's a brilliant method, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm sure you you, you sort of intuited your way to the book, and then you read it, and you're like, this is exactly what I've been doing, and I want to, you know, explore it. articulate much better than I possibly could. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad somebody packaged up my very unstructured thinking. But nonetheless, you, you did a good job figuring it out yourself. Maybe switching gears a bit, I imagine that when... I don't know what your first interaction was with the large language model world uh, or sort of generative AI or just AI, you know, in, in general. But a lot of the, I could see where, you know, starting 15 years ago, a lot of just doc generation can be not AI at all. It's just, you generate a document from structured data, that makes sense. But what was your first interaction with this new tech where you said, hey, wow, this like really changes the game and opens up a lot of potentially new problems we can solve that we weren't able to solve before. Like, Explain to me, like, what was that first point of sort of awareness or interaction with the technology? Uh, so that was last September. So it was pre-chat GPT, but we got to know Harvey, which is a startup in the OpenAI startup fund. And we got to know OpenAI a little bit as well, actually. And in that process, we got access to GPT-4 and beta. Mm. Because Sam Altman considered law as an interesting area, and that kind of trickled down in the way that they were starting to ready themselves to go to market. So we, I got it in my team. We got it in a sandbox, and we tested it. Uh, this is September, October last year, and thought, "What? This is extraordinary. This is they made all previous legal tech laughable. Really, it was laughable." Yeah. And so. I walked around to my the managing senior partner, like a CEO and chairman of the company, I suppose, in, in, yeah. in, in three sectors. And I said, look at this on my iPad. And we we played around a bit a bit. And I said, all right, we're going to put everything into this. Do you agree? Yeah. I said, yeah, let's do it. So I spent several weeks in my team. I grabbed 10 people from my team, give or take. And I said, forget what you're doing. All you're going to do now is spend the next six weeks developing governance around safe deployment. So we don't break anything, but our objective is to roll it out across the firm in record time and then to create in a trial or feedback loop. So we developed the governance and we then rolled it out in phases with the objective of hitting 2,000 lawyers by Christmas Eve internally. It's all internally. And accompanying it, we introduced a feedback loop where we were saying, like, what are you using it for? What do you think of it? Is it good for that purpose? What did you think of the governance? It was all about the governance, really. It was a feedback loop in the governance, actually, in training and identification of the use case. That was what that feedback loop was about. And we got huge amounts of data in. Ridiculously, it was like a criminal IT survey. We got 600 very detailed responses, if you can imagine. Like, he fills in an IT survey. It's basically a long survey about what did you ask, what did it say? Was it good? And we got amazing mm. responses. So based on that feedback, we had some further conversations with Harvey about Roadmap, and then we made it part of our operating model. We rolled it out across the firm. Since then, we've been building on it. So we've been like uh, basically plugging it into our drafting tools. Contract Matrix is, a, is, a, is our iteration now. We've, we've plugged in generative AI, so it augments the lawyer negotiator and grounds what they're doing using the AI in, in a library of previous deals and A&O templates. So we're really mm. like seeing this as the heart and soul of R&D for the next few months. And this is, it has become a strategic priority of the firm. We now have, 
I checked actually this morning. We have 3,700 people who are regular users of our generative AI systems, Harvey All Contract Matrix. And they use it on average 3,800 times a day, just to give you a sense of the scale. And wow. it's a multiple language. So it's really becoming the operating model. And they're only doing that because obviously it's saving them time. It's making them more efficient and they don't have to go home so late, which yeah. is a thing in the industry. And I mean, it's an incredible story. You guys were at probably like one of the first, if not the first law firm to really take this seriously. And it's, uh, yeah, it will pay dividends. Yeah, um, I hope so. I think it's competitive advantage for us. hundred yeah. percent agree with you. So going back to that survey you did, I'd love to actually go through each of the both governance and use case feedback loops. I love how you sort of think about that. But maybe on the, the use cases first, there is the, the sort of doc generation, doc drafting, there's the you know search for citations, e-discovery type stuff. Like wh where exactly, how would you sort of segment out the different use cases you, you think people have found over time to be most helpful? Yeah, so we, we did a little pre-thinking this and and try to unpack the functions of a lawyer in the business. So we had a kind of transactional side and then we had the advisory side and they had slightly different things you were doing, right? So one would be draft, another one would be comment on, another one would be summarize, another one would be chivy along like transaction management. Then we'd have a you know, area of research. You'd see common functions like summarize an area of research and it would be provide insight off the back of an area of research, you know, so we had all these different things and we we're trying to, in our feedback loop, flush out with a slightly different version for different practice areas, which bit they were using it most. What we discovered, because generative AI was novel to us, and now everyone's familiar, but what we discovered back then was that it's such a malleable tool. If you could sort of point it at a use case in the right way, leverage a database into it in the right way, Almost every function it can have an impact on, and it came down to user uptake. When I saw that, I saw in a feedback loop, I, I got a feel for it in the way that people were talking about it and their detailed commentary plus star ratings and things. That's, that was just, I suppose, affirmed the conclusion would reach that this was going to completely transform legal industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were there... I guess, if you think about, and this is hard to do, but if you were to, to sort of stack rank by number of labor hours saved across or within yeah. each of transactional and advisory, what do you think those yeah. top one, two, three things are? I would say on transactional, tweaking drafting or coming up like cure writer's block drafting. So come up with a really bespoke provision. I would say it's going to be in the top couple of things. Translation is incredible. That was unexpected. Like the translating to different languages is extremely mm. effective at that. Better than a lot of translation tools. We, did, we didn't predict that at all, actually. That came back in a feedback loop. And I would say where, P, where you can drop in data sets, you know, and point the model at defined data sets, I'd say data extraction is going to become the next one in the next few months. You know, we're going to really see, see that take off as that technique gets better and better. And how should I think about when you say uh, sort of drop in a data set? Like, just can you give me a for example of what that would look like? Well, I mean, it would be called retrieval augmented generation. So it's the idea that you can point the general foundation model or a Harvey tuned version of it at a curated data set within the business. It could be a load of transactions I need to due diligence. It could be a load of law that I need to summarize and 
and advise on, and then ask the foundation model questions where the responses are channeled over that database, right? So the hallucination sure. rate is a bit lower. It has more than what is generally in the data set that's behind the foundation model. It's almost like you're pointing the model at things within your organization, right? Which you've set, you've curated for a purpose. Mm. We're, get, we're getting better and better at that. That is really going to create another turbocharge on adoption of this technology, I think. 100%. Yeah, I, I was curious. I mean, I've seen some people do it on regulatory information, just, you know, existing judgments or, or in, internal sort of client-specific docs. And so I, I don't know if, if you can share, but I'm curious across each of those categories, like w- which you think is most compelling, or maybe it's just all of them together. Well, it's any use case where there is value in extracting and then summarizing vast amounts of data. So it's, it's everything. I mean, it could be a business when you're doing, you need to know market practice, right? To invite, to, to, to work properly and do deals, you need to know market practice. So using the machine to bring you market practice. It could be M&A where you're, you need to understand the company you're buying. So it's due diligence at rapid speed, same function. Litigation, it could be an existential threat to the business. I need to know if there's a smoking gun in my mm-hmm. in, in all of my emails, whatever. Same technique, hugely valuable. So it's almost like pick a valuable business in the legal industry and you'll find a, you'll find a generative AI function that will slot into it. It really, it makes me think of, I don't know if you're, you, you've seen the, the Twitter meme of the bell curve, but it's like you start out trying to just like, you know, use the basic stuff and you try to be super sophisticated and you're like, honestly, just do the most obvious things. It's probably going to be it's useful. Simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can agree with that. <laughs> yeah, There's a totally. lot of it. I mean, huge demand. I think keeping it simple but reliable was a trick. And actually, I, my second hat is advising clients on safe deployment of AI. And the reason we did that is because you need so much discipline around deployment of AI, generative AI. You know, you need to create ways of reducing hallucinations. You obviously need to focus on protection of data, not leaking trade secrets and into the ether of general training data for models. That's hugely damaging for a business. We're worried about client data and that is a complete red line. So all these things we've learned in the process I think play out, but as soon as, soon as you've got a, pl- a plan around those that you know the technology can really take off, then we're, we're creating a licensed product it's like Contract Matrix. We're like we're, we'll be licensing to clients. That's our internal deal negotiation tool. Our clients have asked us for it, actually. We've had a half dozen. They've heard about it from just from lawyers' internal use, and they're thinking, well, you've done it in a safe way. Basically, we want to leverage that. Of course, I'm not surprised at all. And I, you, you sort of, you preempted my next question, which was on this, this issue, going back to what you said on governance, so how do you do this in the right way, safe way? Of course, there are issues on, you know, data loss by sending it to some third-party model that's on sandbox, but there's also, you know, generation, evolutionations of things that don't exist. There's, you know, input manipulation, output controls, evals, quality, like there's just so much in here. How do you, when you are advising clients, help them think through, each of those issues they have to think about? If we take hallucinations as an example, the starting position is that you've got the equivalent of, if you open up a foundation or a generative AI model, you've got the equivalent of a very articulate, extremely eloquent 13-year-old who doesn't know what it doesn't know and will always answer the questions with beguiling confidence. And so what we are saying to clients is, no, you know, you start with governance around that 13-year-old. 
you point it at things where it doesn't matter it's a 13-year-old, unusually talented one, admittedly. And when you're ready, you are then looking at antidotes to the that, that error risk, that 13-year-old's overconfidence, that hallucination risk. And at that point, we're then into the space of creating governance around deployment of RAG, you know, retrieval augmented, augmented generation. So that means pointing the 13-year-old at a book in your library and making it answer by reference to that book. Even better, show you pages in the book. So there's a whole series of steps, and each of those steps needs probably ex- you know, external services from specialists, it, you know, positions on data privacy and making sure you can protect your data as you're on a journey. A governance of an organization, keeping away from certain functions where it's risky. Maybe you're susceptible to, you know, discrimination laws because you're rolling out in your HR department, so don't. That kind of stuff. So it becomes like a giant combination of use case, operational, and good contractual terms of service providers that tend to sort of manage these risks at scale from hallucination, data privacy to IP infringement, whatever it is. And and are there problems that you guys have felt that you know, you, you've pretty well solved since when you first started doing this in September last year, and ones that you know maybe are are less clear in how you try to solve them, or things you're still working through? I would say that there is a residual hallucination risk, which is not completely removable, in my opinion. I think we've done a lot in terms of antidotes, in terms of trying to find ways to leverage safe databases and so on. My feeling is there's something, there is something fundamental in the design of the foundation models that make a hallucination risk a forever risk. That's the one I think that is going to be very hard to manage. The other ones like data privacy and intellectual property infringement, they're all manageable somehow. And obviously information security, you know, you can encrypt your data and do lots of things. But this one I feel is quite fundamental. It might be there's a technological advancement, but my, and I'm sure there will be, but it might need a reinvention of how the models are designed. On the tech I'm seeing today, I'm, I, I'm not seeing a path through that, just, just ways of reducing the risk. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the test is to beat the humans, and that is achievable even with a residual hallucination risk. It doesn't have to yeah. be perfect, better than the current position. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's funny. This comes up in almost every conversation I have on the show. It's you know, you think about the self-driving cars, they're objectively more safe than humans, but because they fail in different ways, people are comfortable with it. And just to your point, like they're, all these models are better than humans. There was a study that was just came out, I think it was a paper last week that was released that said, you know, if you ask humans to summarize a document and you ask OpenAI GPT-4 to summarize a document, humans hallucinate more, in fact, than, than GPT-4 does. And that's in summarization. That's not even in basic generation. So, you know, we just don't have to get comfortable with this as a, are slightly imperfect, but clearly a lot better than most humans work partner and just, you know, I think it's a societal thing more than it's a technology thing in a lot of cases. I agree with that. And I think what what's happening now is that companies are looking at it and assessing it by tabloid risk, really. Yeah. So it's like, if is it a use case one where that residual 4% will get me in the front page of the tabloid saying you used it for medical devices and you knew, and you know, it was in the algorithm. There'd be a four percent error rate, and people died. You know, catastrophic for the business. That's one use case, but there might be another use case where you couldn't possibly do. It's just, but you're buying a company, right? You couldn't possibly do all the due diligence. That four percent error risk is very tolerable because the alternative is not really knowing what you're buying, or not mm. properly, not all due diligence. 
So that's an example where people, I think, because it's not a tabloid use case, probably, you can actually use it and, and hold yourself to the human standard, not the higher standards, because people get fearful of machines. So yeah, I, I'm feeling the case is going to drive the answer to that as people get familiar with tech. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, it's going to open up more over time. People are just going to get you know, used to it, I think. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So maybe changing gears slightly, but, but related, if you think about the, the solution you're delivering, a sort of a stack of different components. At the base layer, there's sort of open AI and they obfuscate away, of course, silicon, core infrastructure, cloud services, et cetera. But open AI at the bottom, and then your sort of yep. delivered product at the top. Somewhere in there is Harvey, and somewhere in there is probably a few other things. But help me understand like what you pull from OpenAI versus what you pull from Harvey versus maybe other vendors you've seen that do quality management or evals or security, and then you guys. And then yeah, sort of part two, which we'll get to, how do you think that will change over time? Like Who will be doing what role here in the product? Okay, so I think your assessment is correct in the sort of value chain, I suppose. So we've got a, f a foundation model, which Harvey is leveraging, and they are tuning it for law in a general way. So it's industry sector tuning. So they are suppressing bits of the model, which won't wrap the answer that well. But they are bringing out elements of the model, which articulate in professional type language, with a bit of on one hand, on the other hand, and starting to sound a bit like a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So there's that bit of vertical tuning. And then from an from my end of the spectrum, we're then into human expert in the loop. So we're using that base product to then augment the real person giving the advice, the real person drafting the contract. And that expert may not take the Harvey output at all. They might ditch it because it's not good enough. But they, a lot of the time, they will take it, improve it, and it's saved a few hours here and there. You say We reckon we save a couple hours a week per lawyer, right? And that's 3,700 3, lawyers. That's a lot of hours of lawyer time, you know, how much lawyers charge. Mm. So you can see you know, that, that chain is, is a nice starting point. What we're now doing is thinking, okay, but we, we're sitting on lots of legal know-how, right? We are the world's largest transactional law firm. We have ideas on how deals should be done and what market practices is in hundreds of jurisdictions, hundreds of areas. How can we start inputting that into the model, the Harvey end or the foundation model end? How could it be leveraged in a safe way so that we can start leveraging that intellectual property to the law firm, which is Alan Mabry's intellectual property? And then we start building on top of contract matrix. We're starting to shape it into a, a service which um, clients can engage in. I would say, I mean, I'd openly say this to Harvey and OpenAI, we're keeping an eye on what else is in the market. There will be competition in this space. We think they're best in class, but cool stuff will come out of Anthropic, already has, interesting things out of DeepMime and Gemini is released. Which sure. We're keeping an eye on what else is out there. We'd be stupid not to, and I think they respect that, obviously. And our objective really is to future-proof our designs so we can port everything we're building into a substitute model if, if we felt what we're using is obsolete. Well, I mean, it makes sense that, that you guys have such a, sort of this amazing, effectively like pre-built set of guardrails, which is what everybody wants in generative AI in the fact that you have this technology platform. And really this is just a one component that goes into that, that can sort of be hot swapped. And so that's, I assume that's not primarily where the value 
should accrue, right? It should accrue to you and that your platform, not to these sort of intermediary services that over time will be increasingly commodity or sort of competitive. Yes, completely. Yeah. So we we are we talk in terms of what is Alan Navery's moat, right? People talk mm-hmm. about moats being AI tech companies. We're thinking, what's our moat actually as someone in the industry sector? And our moat is that knowledge on governance and management legal issues and market practice precedents, what's the law and jurisdiction X versus Y, that kind of stuff. And we definitely want to harvest that, curate it in our environment so that we can change that service provider, exactly as you say. And I think that's true of all industry sectors, right? It'll be true of pharmaceuticals and it will be true of banks and it'll be tr- true of private equity and name it. You know, manufacturers, they're all be th- they should be thinking the same terms. Yeah, uh, I, and not those trade secrets and that know-how seep into the general model. You want it to be sitting in your end and then swap out the models of the best in class. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that a lot of the value will come. Obviously, the, the Gen AI thing will, will become commodity over time. But what will be really unique is when you guys put this across all of your historical work, which is only going to grow over time, and say, look, like you know, when we put in this language, here's typically what happens across a thousand companies across all these different geographies. Such yeah. an amazing position to be in. Yeah, and and so we then spend. We we know we can do it. We are doing it. We then spend all, loads of energy in making sure client data is safe, properly segregated, and there's no contamination between clients. Which then mm. becomes, you know, thinking about the, our customer base. That's going to be the priorities. So over time, I mean, I assume you guys, if you think about the, the shift in this value chain of of delivery of these AI powered products. What do you envision yourself wanting to own versus not? I assume you're not going to want to run, run your own data center or build your own chips, of course. So like, wh- where do you start to draw that line of like, look, we, we, just, we actually would like a Harvey because we don't want to be fine-tuning ourselves. Or you say, look, like, that's going to be kind of a commodity service. It's going to be offered by OpenAI and other products. And so everything else we can kind of do in-house. So we really only need OpenAI or, or a cloud provider that offers a foundational model. Like, wh- where do you start to make that, that flip in the build versus buy, I guess is my question. Well, we are building technology that either we're not building models we're not trying to replicate any of the the lower ends of that chain we are focusing on things that leverage the databases we sit on and then allow the lawyer using it to use it in a very slick way like a workflow and i can see us defining ourselves always in that it's that extra bit of legal data and that knowledge and how lawyers are using it which is then a, a product that clients will want to access and license. And I don't really see why the two would meet, really. I think you can sort of segregate the two. We, and you're right, we wouldn't do the things you described at the beginning of your question, because what's the point? We're not going to do it better than an open AI or a Microsoft or a whoever it is. So we're not going to try. I guess I'm trying to understand, like, there, there's some point at which you'll say, I, I think I understand what the obvious point is, but I think there's a little bit of ambiguity in that where the line is exactly, because you could say, hey, we want to fine tune for every client. So actually, we don't want a Harvey in the long run, because they're giving us a single version of fine tune. And we really want to do our own fine tuning using cloud infrastructure from AWS or whatever, or Microsoft. Yeah. Like, yeah. like on that more like, I guess, fine tuned view of the world, where do you see the line being drawn? Well, we are a little bit nervous that there's going to be a massive war on talent for data science or the ability to do, you know, elements of data science like RAG as an example. Okay. Mm. So 
we this is actually a topic for internal discussion. Are we going to join that talent war? If you imagine every enterprise in the world eventually might go, I need to leverage generative, generative AI on my business, and I don't want my internal knowledge to seep out into the underlying model, so I need to manage it on my end, you know, equivalent of on-prem. And so we do have a data scientist team with some capabilities there. I think we are at an inflection point, actually, Andrew, to answer your question. We are debating whether or not to scale it up so we could build ourselves mm. or to do partnerships like we're doing now or to just buy it in when we need it and focus on on our end. I think it will be a question of how expensive that talent gets in terms of build. If we feel we can compete, we can hire really good people, we'll do it. If we get priced out the market because people want to work for a tech titan, not for a, a law firm, then you know that will drive the strategy more than anything. Anything else in here that you think is important to cover that we're not covering yet? I mean, it's been such a great conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. But I want to make sure that we don't miss anything big here because there's a lot to talk about. Well, I think we've covered future proofing, actually. I think that's something which people are really worried about, you know, is how do I stop myself getting completely operationally dependent on a tech provider? I mm. think that's like the recurring issue nowadays. I'd say in the last few weeks, really. If they've gone back six months, it would have been about information security. But now it's like, I do not want to roll out AI in my business and wake up in a year and find... I cannot function without it, and I'm completely stuck with whatever the latest price is of my tech provider, even if it's becoming a bit obsolete. Yeah, I don't know if that's narrow, Andrew, that you want to explore, or if maybe that's the extent of it. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a really interesting thread to explore. I mean, what, what what's your thinking there? Do you, is it is the view that everything you do needs to be closer to the cloud infrastructure level, and you need to have modularization across those providers so you can hot swap? Or how do you think about it? Yeah, I think the things you just said completely, but I actually think a business like ours, like any other, might want to have a porting plan, you know, and actually have one in the top shelf, which every once in a while you look at and say, right, could we move AI provider? What would that look like? And just yeah. test it. Because I think absent that kind of check, I think I think a lot of businesses could get lulled into this dependency and find themselves in a tricky position in another five years. So that would be. I think that's 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 what we're going to do. I th I would say that's what I think a lot of businesses should be thinking in those terms as well. It actually makes me go to like who does that help? And it actually is a really big pro I think for the providers of these eval systems effectively like regression testing because it's like okay you want to switch from opening gpt4 fine-tune with rv to whatever else or your own thing how do you know that that's not going to break everything in your workflows it's kind of hard to know that yeah. without some system that can do that well and evaluate it well you know you're right so you're creating you're also as well as an operational resilience thing you're creating the ability to test alternative providers for the live event i agree i think i right. think that's a important secondary because how do you test them right otherwise you're relying on third-party independent testing criteria but that may not be relevant to your business right right well you've certainly seen some stuff come out around the effectiveness of gpt4 as an evaluator or any foundational model as an evaluator and i think really what it what it's now becoming is a okay like we're going to quickly realize that sort of the eval thing will be well solved the question is then like how do you operationalize that such that if you do want to flip a switch 
sort of push the AWS button instead of Microsoft, that it all just goes without a huge yeah. amount of business disruption. I mean, we, we do have in our sandbox and my team, so not scale to the firm, we do have a toggle actually. So we can, oh, yeah. So we run trials within my group and we, we can flip a switch between three model providers at once and run the same task and then allow a kind of mini feedback loop within my group to see how it's performing. Mm. We actually did pre-generative AI. We were doing it on the old, you know, sort of much narrower AI products in a legal space because we were trying to compare them, work out which were any good, but we've kind of repurposed it. Mm. And we are using that. It's, you know, it's very interesting to see how they stack up. Wow. We have looked at it. Do you find that the product has to change massively when you go from one model to the next? A little bit. I would say the way we're using it, not as much as you'd think. I would say there was quite a lot of portability between them actually today. I think that will get a bit trickier over time, actually, mm. as you know, sort of diverge more and more. Uh, yeah. I haven't seen, for example, what Gemini looks like. So I can only speak to the ones which are in play today. Um, yeah. Gemini will be an interesting one. The move yeah. with Amazon and Dropbox just yesterday was an interesting one Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. That's a huge move. Yeah. Really so, interesting. Uh, really, really interesting uh, time to be in your seat. But look, I mean, as everyone says, like, I think that there's this, this idea in, in the venture capital land that you want to be always a non-consensus investor where it's, mm. and you're always doing things that people aren't, aren't the consensus thing, right? But I think in reality, it's actually, you want to be eventually consensus. And I think you're decision to start doing this 15 years ago was in retrospect looks genius because it was perfectly eventually consensus. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight <laughs> is a great thing. It's plan all along, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. 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 You saw it all the way through, you know, but I was going to get started and you were just orchestrating the, the thing. I um, knew I'd be doing this podcast today. You actually just perfectly predict the future. Well, like when uh, they say better to be lucky than good, although it helps to be good as well. And, and it's really impressive. <laughs> you know. Thank you. But thanks again, David, for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Andrew.